Book Four: The Goblet of Fire. I can't believe we are on Book Four now. And it opens Chapter One opens with the Riddle House, and it's the most unusual opening. I think all expecting something from the Dursleys' house, right? But it's not. It's from the Little Hangleton. The first half of this chapter gave me strong Agatha Christie vibe. You know, at the end of the World War Two, that era of huge, well-stuffed country house, I almost thought I'm going to read something like Murder at the Riddle Manor. If from book three we've gotten exponentially darker themes, this one just opens with murder case. <laughs> I like J.K. Rowling as ex- exploring more diverse writing style or storytelling. It opens with T, the villagers of the Little Hangleton. Still called it the Riddle House, even though it had been many years since the Riddle family had lived there. Ding ding ding! <laughs> Once a fine-looking manor, and easily the largest and grandest building for miles around, the Riddle House was now damp, derelict, and unoccupied. The Little Hangletons all agreed that the old house was creepy because something strange and horrible had happened there half a century ago. Of course, that's the ingredients for a haunted manor. <laughs> The villagers or the old inhabitants still like to gossip about it when they have nothing to gossip about. The story had been picked over so many times and had been embroidered in so many places. Nobody was quite sure what the truth was anymore. Every version of the tale, however, started in the same place. Fifty years before, at daybreak on a fine summer's morning. When the riddle house had still been well kept and impressive, a maid had entered the drawing room to find all three riddles dead. The maid, of course, had run screaming down the hills into the village and shouting, lying there with their eyes wide open, cold as ice, still in the dinner things. Da da da! <laughs> Nobody wasted their breath pretending to feel very sad about the riddles, for they had been most unpopular. Suddenly, Mister and Missus Riddle had been rich, snobbish, and rude, and their grown-up son Tom had been, if anything, worse. All the villagers cared about was the identity of their murderer. For plainly, three apparently healthy people do not all drop dead of natural causes on the same night in a village pub called the Handman. Such a play of words again. So this is a village called Little Hangleton, and the pub is called the Handman. I would say very suitable actually, because every single one of them are doing a trade to talk or discuss the murder, just like the rest of the whole village. Then the Riddle's cook arrived dramatically in their midst. We have a convict. Frank, Frank Bryce has just been arrested. The almost silenced pub all of a sudden had a rush to buy this cook drinks and hear more details. The she cook, obviously a big mouth, after her fourth sherry, told them, "Always thought he was odd, unfriendly, like I'm sure if I've offered her a cup once, I've offered it a hundred times. Never wanted to mix. He didn't." Okay, as we know, Frank Bryce was the gardener. For the Riddles family, and he was also a veteran soldier. He basically had come back from the war with a very stiff neck and a great dislike of crowds. Wonder why? And loud noises, and had been working for the Riddles ever since. Just can we be more basic? But of course, you can always expect more from J.K. Rowling. He was not convicted. He was accused but released for lack of evidence later. Some people would say Frank never. Some people would say, "Well, he had a hard war. He had a hard life. He likes a quiet life. That's no reason to accuse him. He was only suspected because he's got a key to the back door." 
And it's very convenient for him because he lived alone in this rundown cottage on the grounds of the Riddle House. At the night of the murder, nobody forced the door and no broken windows. But over in the neighboring town of Great Hangleton, in this dark and dingy police station, Frank was stubbornly repeating again and again that he was innocent and that the only person he had seen near the house on the day of the Riddle's murder had been a teenage boy, a stranger. Dark-haired and pale. Oh, Frank! <laughs> Just when things were looking very dire for Frank here, a report from the doctors changed everything because none of the riddles had been poisoned, stabbed, shot, strangled, suffocated, or, as far as they could tell, harmed at all. In fact, the riddles all appeared to be in perfect health. Oh yeah, perfect health, except for death. But the doctors did note that each of the riddles had a look of terror upon his or her face. Ooh, a scene straight out of the horror movie. All three of them has been frightened to death. Mystery indeed, and the police was forced to let Frank go. The riddles were buried in the little Hangleton churchyard, and their graves remained objects of curiosity for a while. And our Frank here, to everybody's surprise, he returned. He returned to his cottage on the Riddle House grounds. He did not leave. He stayed to tender the garden for the next family, and then the next, until it became a haunted mansion. <laughs> Because everybody kept on saying there was a nasty feeling about that place. Even though the wealthy men who own the Riddle House they don't live there, but they still paid Frank to do the gardening. As the day passed and Frank's health deteriorated, he can't basically tend the garden very well now, very properly now, as old man, and it start really look like a haunted mansion. So when Frank awoke one night in August and saw something very odd up at the old house, and the next thing was in the movies, right? So when he saw Voldemort, Wormtail, and the snake. After our Frank here heard all the conversation about eavesdrops on their plans, how to come back, how to bring our Lord Voldemort back, all this evil plan, he was killed. So what you say? You never interrupt a sinister meeting. Don't go listen. Just turn away. Joking. So that almost brings us to the present of the book, I think. Although we don't quite sure the dates, it should be the end of July or beginning of August in 1994. So the murder happened 50 years before. Since the action of this chapter in the present day takes place on the same morning as the next chapter, we might assume it takes place on a Saturday in August of 1944. However, since the year itself is not exactly 50 years before. So we can't really assume the precise dates, but that's beyond the point. I think after book three, I'm a little bit obsessed with the dates for each chapter. Just a few interesting facts. I think obviously we know the boy Frank has been talking about was Tom Riddle, the son and grandson of the people who died in the house. By the way, it's Junior. Okay, Tom Junior. Remember in Chamber of Secrets, I think he said he's named after his dad. It's just a little bit strange that no one else saw him in town because. Nobody have seen such a boy. We aren't told how Tom Riddle killed his father and the grandparents, but judging by the medical or doctor's notes, remember we just read that. But it's possible to assume that it's the killing curse. But this is in contrast to the killing curse or the spell which had Harry as a child. It just left a lightning bolt scar on his forehead, 
So it just make just make you wonder, like either Tom didn't use Vada Kedavra on his family at all, or the spell which had Harry was drastically modified from its normal form by none other than Lily, Harry's mom's own sacrifice. And the next theory was from the fans. They say the wealthy man who owned the Riddle House was Lucius Malfoy. <laughs> Okay, let's just continue to see what they are talking about in this sinister meeting gathering. Again, the front door of the Riddle House bore no sign of being forced, nor did any of the windows. It's a sign, Frank. Just run away. A note. Frank limped around to the back of the house until he reached the door, almost completely hidden by Ivy. Took out the old key, put it into the lock, and opened the door noiselessly. Here we get a feeling that he had not entered it for many years. He just attended the gardens, I guess. He was not inside the house for many years. Anyway, fumbling around, he finally saw the intruders. At the very end of the passage, there was a door stood ajar, and a flickering light shone through the gap. And he drew closer and closer. Several feet from the entrance, he was able to see a narrow slice of the room beyond. A fire he now saw had been lit in the grate. This surprised him. Then he stopped moving and listened intently. For a man's voice spoke within the room. It sounded timid and fearful. There is a little more in the bottle, my lord. If you are still hungry, so Wormtail is milking Voldemort. Devoted fans could make fun of this fact for days and years. And this second voice, which is Voldemort, said later, "Where is Nagini? You know the giant serpent. The Wormtail has to milk her as well. Wormtail just basically like, I don't see her. Maybe she go explore the house." Voldemort just said, "Okay, you will milk her before we retire. I will need feeding in the night." And then the plan goes. Voldemort told Wormtail that we might stay here a bit longer because we have to wait until the Quidditch World Cup is over. As for reason why, Voldemort said, "Quote because full." At this very moment, wizards are pouring into the country from all over the world, and every meddler from the Ministry of Magic will be on duty, on the watch for signs of unusual activity, checking and double-checking identities. They will be obsessed with security, lest the Muggles notice anything. So we wait. I like how Frank interpreted this conversation. It's like he distinctly heard the words "Ministry of Magic," "Wizards," and "Muggles." This must be some sort of code, and only two kinds of people using code: spies and criminals. <laughs> and if you remember, when in last book, book three, Dumbledore told Harry that saving Wormtail actually will put Wormtail in debt of Harry. And here we can see a little evidence of that. Wormtail was suggesting it can. My lord, I do not say this out of concern for the boy. The boy is nothing to me, nothing at all. It is merely that if we were to use another witch or wizard, any wizards, the thing could be done so much more quickly. If you allowed me to leave you for a short while, you know that I can disguise myself most effectively. I could be back here in as little as two days with a suitable person. And Voldemort said, "I could use another wizard. That is true. And you volunteer to go and fetch me a substitute." I wonder. Perhaps the task of nursing me has become wearisome for you, Wormtail. Could this suggestion of abandoning the plan be nothing more than an attempt to desert me? Of course, Wormtail said, "I have no wish to leave you, my lord, not at all." And through the next conversation, we know Voldemort is still very weak, and it's like, "How am I to survive without you when I need feeding every few hours? Who is to milk Nagini?" 
But then Voldemort said, I have my reasons for using the boy, as I have already explained to you, and I will use no other. I have waited 13 years. A few more months will make no difference. As for all the protection surrounding the boy, I believe my plan will be effective. All that is needed is a little courage from you, Wormtail. Courage you will find unless you wish to for the full extent of Lord Voldemort's wrath. It's just so funny to read their conversations, how they talk. We know one of the followers, Bertha Jorkins, is now killed by Voldemort. Some sort of sacrifice, I guess. And Wormtail for one second was worried about, you are not going to kill me too, right? Wormtail, Wormtail, why would I kill you? I killed Bertha because I had to. She was fed for nothing after my questioning. Quite useless. And out in the corridor, Frank was just thinking about creep out to the police station. But... Voldemort's voice changed. He started making noises such as Frank had never heard before. He was hissing and spitting without drawing breath. Frank thought he must be having some sort of fit or seizure. And then Frank heard movement behind him in the dark passageway. He turned to look and found himself paralyzed with fright. He saw a gigantic snake at least 12 feet long. Horrified, transfixed, Frank stared at its undulating body cut a wide curvy track through the thick dust on the floor, coming closer and closer. What was he to do? The only means of escape was into the room. But before he had made his decision, the snake was level with him. And then, incredibly, miraculously, it was passing. It was following the spitting, hissing noise made by the cold voice beyond the door. And in seconds, the tip of its diamond-patterned tail had vanished through the gap. How beautifully composed is this paragraph, huh? Yeah, the snake is not going to kill you, Frank, but you are going to die. Just wait for it. <laughs> but Frank realized that this man could talk to snakes. We, we get that line from the movies. Nagini has interesting news. According to Nagini, there is an old muggle standing right outside this room, listening to every word we say. Invite him inside, Wormtail. Where are your manners? Oh, our Frank had no choice but limped over the threshold inside the room. Our Frank here is like, All I know is I've heard enough to intrude the police tonight. I have, yes. You've done murder and you're planning more. And I'll tell you this too. My wife knows I'm up here and if I don't come back. <laughs> A cold voice said again, You have no wife. Nobody knows you're here. You told nobody that you were coming. Do not lie to Lord Voldemort's muggle. For he knows. He always knows. And Voldemort decided to show his face to Frank, for reason unknown. All we know was when Frank saw the face, he was screaming so loudly that he never heard the words the thing in the chair spoke as he raised a wand. There was a flash of green light, a rushing sound, and our Frank Bryce crumpled. He was dead before he hit the floor. Dun dun dun. <laughs> and 200 miles away, the boy called Harry Potter woke with a start. 200 miles, huh? So if you draw out the map, you draw a circle with a 200 mile radius on the map of Britain and determine where the Riddle House is. Although we can never be sure with JK here. Maybe she made it up, you know. She admits that geography and math were the two subjects, her weak points. And then we move to chapter two. But before that, we definitely could get a glimpse of the Riddle family, right? They are pretty well off. As we know, if you read any Agatha Christie, you know, after World War II, many house or manor were left in disrepair. If the Riddle house was well kept and impressive, they could afford to maintain a staff of at least three Servants, we already know a cook, a maid, and Frank here, the gardener. So they are definitely loaded. Also dead. 
chapter two, the scar. So the whole purpose of this chapter is to recap. It's like previously on Harry Potter, and to recap some of the main points from the books before, and also provide some brief character sketches of Hermione, Ron, and some other main characters. But I also don't want to just skip this part because let's say the exposition is handled rather gracefully now because I'm on this marathon. So I was like back to back reading Harry Potter from book one to book three now, book four now. I must give it to J.K. Rowling. Each time the recap、uh, chapter is really just rather gracefully done. This time around is when Harry trying to decide whom to ask for advice about this whole Scarpain situation. Do I write to Hermione? Then Hermione is this kind of character. Do I write to Ron? And what Ron's reaction would be? Do I write to Dumbledore? What Dumbledore is like? I do like the part when he thought he had no idea where Dumbledore went during the summer holidays. He amused himself for a moment, picturing Dumbledore with his long silver beard, full-length wizard's robes. And pointed hat stretched out on the beach somewhere, rubbing suntan lotion onto his long, crooked nose. But he crossed this option as well because the sound of like, "Dear Professor Dumbledore, sorry to bother you, but my scar hurt this morning." Yours sincerely, Harry Potter. Even inside his head, the words sounded stupid. So first he thought about Hermione, and Hermione's advice would be go straight to the headmaster and to go consult a book. Harry just don't think books can help him because this scar was left by Lord Voldemort. So it's highly unlikely that he would find any of these symptoms listed in any books. And then he thought about Dumbledore, crossed that option as well. Then he thought about Ron. He thought Ron would definitely tell Mister Weasley, like your scar hurts, but but you know who can't be near you now, can he? I mean. Da da da! I don't know, Harry. Maybe because scars always twinge a bit. I will ask Dad. Harry didn't like the idea of the whole Weasley family knowing that he, Harry Potter, was getting jumpy about a few moments' pain. This just goes to show he really cares so much about the Weasley's good opinion of him. This is the beginning or start of thinking you have a you have to save your face. There's something you can't just tell people around. It's embarrassing and that kind of thing. Also, just by imagining. Him here to picturing each person's reaction is actually the beginning of critical thinking. It means Harry already understands that what he experiences and knows clearly have multiple ways to interpret or react to it because each person will react to it differently. And he knew that. And eventually, he decided to write to Sirius Black, his godfather. Also, it's like the most embarrassing thing. It's okay to tell your family after all. On the same level, if he decided to tell Sirius Black about this, it just says a lot about how quickly their relationship has developed. They've just met last year, so it definitely shows blood run thick. Okay, so this chapter opens with Harry awakened by this burning sensation on his forehead. It's like burning beneath his fingers, as though someone had just pressed a. White hot wire to his skin. Also, he had this bad dream, but is it? It's just like he's got this sixth sense. He knew what's happening on like two hundred miles away. The Riddle House property. I guess for a moment he wasn't sure where he was, and he finally reassured himself he's still in his bedroom. But he ran his fingers over the scar again. It was still painful. I like how he go peered into the mirror, and a skinny boy of fourteen looked back at him. So this is definitely someday in August because his birthday is July thirty first, which is already passed. 
Anyway, he looked in the mirror and he examined the lightning bolt of his reflections more closely. It looked normal, but it's still dangling. Then he tried to recall what he had dreaming about before he had awoken. He can only remember hearing that Voldemort and Wormtail are planning on killing him. He also tried to remember what Voldemort had looked like, but it was impossible. He's kind of really got that sense. I don't know, some kind of connection with Voldemort because in his mind's eye, there is like when Voldemort's chair has swung around and he, Harry, had seen what was sitting in it. He had felt a spasm of horror. That's what awoken him. And the idea of them plotting to kill him definitely gave him a start. And he just quickly examined the surroundings just to check if Voldemort's here. Only relieved that he wasn't. And just to describe, Privet Drive looked exactly as a respectable suburban street would be expected to look in early hours of Saturday morning. Everything looked normal, but he just can't help but worrying quite a lot because last time his scar had hurt him, it had been because Voldemort had been close by. And if that's the case, the idea of Voldemort lurking in Privet Drive was absurd. But Harry listened closely to the silence around him. And then he jumped slightly as he heard his cousin Dudley gave a tremendous grunting snore from the next room. As Harry will learn the following year, this works both ways. Dudley can hear Harry's nightmares. And I really like the following descriptions about the Dursleys. So he was being stupid, he decided. There was no one in the house with him except Uncle Vernon, Aunt Petunia and Dudley. And they were plainly still asleep, their dreams untroubled and painless. Asleep was the way Harry liked the Dursleys best. It wasn't as though they were ever any help to him a week. So they are like the first options to be crossed out because Harry had never been able to confide in them or tell them anything about his life in the Wizarding World or anything else. So during time like this, he really wished he would be in the castle back at the Hogwarts castle, but there was still two weeks to go before he went back to school. And when he come to think about the Weasleys, he do think do hope that the Weasley family will invite him soon to visit them so they can attend the Quidditch World Cup. And this dream will come true very soon. <laughs> Finally, he realizes whom he should ask. Sirius Black, his godfather, who until a few months ago was still locked away in the Wizarding Prison, Azkaban. We know that Sirius had been of some help to Harry, even if he couldn't be with him. It was due to Sirius Black that Harry now had all his school things in his bedroom. The Dursleys had never allowed this before. Harry just happened to tell them, oh, my godfather is just a killer on loose. <laughs> so they just, Harry now really know how to use his own version of censorship, what to tell Vernon and Petunia just to share the right amount of information in order to achieve his own goal. For example, now his, all his stuff was in his bedroom. That's how the Dursley's attitudes had changed. And Harry had received two letters from Sirius since he had been back at Privet Dry. Both had been delivered, not by owls, but by large, brightly colored tropical birds, whom annoyed Hedwig greatly. I like how J.K. Rhodes, Hedwig had been most reluctant to allow them to drink from her water tray before flying off again. All in all, he decided to write to Sirius Black, just like, Dear Sirius, Thank you for your last letter. That bird was enormous. It could hardly get through my window. Things are the same as usual here. Dudley's diet isn't going too well. My aunt found him smuggling donuts into his room yesterday. They told him they'd have to cut his pocket money if he keeps doing it. So he got really angry and chucked his PlayStation out of the window. That's a sort of computer thing you can play games on. Bit stupid, really. 
da 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 blah blah blah. I'm okay mainly because those leads are terrified you might turn up and turn them all into bats if I ask you to. A weird thing happened this morning though. My scar hurt again. Last time that happened, it was because Voldemort was at Hogwarts. But I don't reckon he can be anywhere near me now, can he? Do you know if cursed scars sometimes hurt years afterwards? This line was pretty iconic. That's all Harry's worry at the moment. Finished writing this letter, he started to get dressed before going down to breakfast. Then chapter three come true. <laughs> no, the invitation. Still, not much happened in this third chapter. We just know that the Dursleys received a diet plan, especially for Dudley, so they are on a diet. And then the title, the invitation, was from Mrs. Weasley, inviting Harry to stay with her family and attend the Quidditch World Cup final. Usually, we get a chapter of how he was abused and bullied by the Dursleys, but now he has outside support to rely on in the form of. Godfather and visiting family friends, and he's beginning to show a little bit color, a little bit like the courage to stand up for himself to the Dursleys. You can call this adolescent rebellion, but really, it doesn't hurt that he's grown to adolescence. And if anybody deserves this kind of rebellious spirit, it's definitely the Dursleys. This chapter opens with by the time Harry arrived in the kitchen, the three Dursleys were already seated around the table. None of them looked up as he entered or sat down. A scene we've all grown familiar now. <laughs> so Uncle Vernon's large red face was hidden behind the morning's Daily Mail, and Aunt Petunia was cutting a grapefruit into quarters. Her lips pursed over her horse-like teeth. I'm I'm not sure about this writing, J.K. Just feel a bit insulting calling somebody's horse-like teeth. They are on a diet because they have received a note or some well-chosen comments from the school nurse. Dudley had reached roughly the size and weight of young Killer Will, so he definitely in no need extra nourishment. He needs to be put on a healthy plan, healthy diet plan. So right now we see Aunt Petunia put a quarter of unsweetened grapefruit onto Dudley's plate. There you are, Daddy Darling. <laughs> But unsweetened. Why do you have to mention that? Do you sweeten your grapefruits? I also quite like the sentence from the school nurse. They were like they didn't understand why Aunt Petunia can't see this when Aunt Petunia's eyes were so sharp when it came to spotting fingerprints on her gleaming walls and in observing the comings and goings of the neighbors. Part of Petunia's really beloved. Yes, I love this part of her traits. It's her devotion to keeping a spotlessly clean house. I'm actually very curious about what kind of inner self she holds. It just feels really weird. It's as though the house had been wiped clean of fingerprints in an attempt to remove any evidence of real life. They say if you really want to keep a spotlessly clean house, it usually feels like you don't you want to remove any evidence of people living inside. So Petunia doesn't seem to have any other hobbies, at least according to the narrator. She only likes to spy on the neighbors, helping Vernon with the social climbing and nourish Dudley. I guess for a housewife as she was, I guess this is like her different attitude towards her adored son and Harry. For her, Aunt Petunia, she can only show her attitudes in a way like different ways of feeding them. Dudley is now like a killer whale, and Harry is like a skinny boy. Dudley has always been overindulgent or overindulged with food and affection at home until. Now, well, Harry has always been underfed. It's like starvation sometimes, and because she created this sort of imbalance, and in a way, Dudley also became this boy who would grab everything Harry really fancied, even if it made himself sick. 
So the parenting results, at least this sort of parenting, is Dudley is so used to having his own way that he's become an absolute bully without the self-discipline to perform well in school. Well, Harry also had Harry's baggage. He has been on his own emotionally for far too much of his own life. So even though it's only Dudley needs this, the rabbit food, carrots and stuff, Petrina insists that the entire family follow this regime to make Dudley feel better. And I really like Harry now learned this would happen. He sends notes to his friends, Hermione, Hagrid, and Weasley's all sent food. And Harry received four cakes for his birthday. And we see him here eating the grapefruits happily, thinking of his cake upstairs. Then the doorbell rings and Vernon goes to answer and ask, calls Harry to the living room. He angrily reads a letter to Harry. It's from Mrs. Weasley asking if she can host Harry for the rest of the summer holiday and also they could have Harry go to the Quidditch World Cup with them. I like how the PS goes, I do hope we've put enough stamps on. As Uncle Vernon growled, look at this. It's like every bit of it was covered in stamps. But we see what Uncle Vernon was mad about was the postman noticed something very interesting. He think it was funny because very interesting to know where this letter came from. Still, they are holding this medieval attitude towards wizards and witches. I like the bit when Vernon asks, who is this woman? And Harry goes, you've seen her. She's my friend Ron's mother. She was meeting her off the hog. He had almost said Hogwarts Express, but he changed. Off the school train at the end of last turn. And Uncle Vernon growled finally. Dumpy saw the woman, loads of children with red hair. Hey, it's not very nice to call someone Dumpy, eh? Then they argue for a minute. Harry just knew. Okay, I will not be going, right? I can't see the World Cup. Can I go now then? Only I've got a letter to series I want to finish, you know? My godfather. He had done it. He had said magic words. Vernon's purple face gets blotchy and finally he agrees that Harry can go. Brightly, Harry steps into the hallway, says to Dudley that breakfast was great and runs upstairs. He discovers Hedwig is back and notices a second owl the size of a tennis ball flying around. Harry takes the note of the owl's leg. It's of course that tiny owl that Sirius gave to Ron and uh, it's a letter from Ron and says that his family will fetch Harry tomorrow, no matter what the Dursleys say. You can compare the very polite letter from Mrs. Weasley and hear Ron's notes. Ron's like, we're coming for you, whether the muggles like it or not. You can't miss the World Cup. Only mom and dad reckon it's better if we pretend to ask their permission first. If they say yes, send Pig back with your answer proto, and we will come and get you at 5 o'clock on Sunday. If they say no, send Pig back proto, and we'll come and get you at 5 o'clock on Sunday anyway. Hermione's arriving this afternoon. He also described Percy a little bit. We knew that Percy started work, the Department of International Magical Cooperation. Then Harry just scribbled something to Ron, a note. Ron, it's all okay. The muggles say I can come. See you five o'clock tomorrow. Can't wait. I think by now we can see the muggle world throwing back and forth between Ron and Harry. Just Harry identify himself as this wizarding world or the wizarding community. At this point of his life, Harry's world it consists only of the Dursleys in this muggle world. So it really holds little for him. And this does illustrate the power that which community you identify yourself with or belong to really depends on how you feel about 
the this community, like unwelcoming or welcoming. And we do get a lot of time references in this chapter. So first of all, Ron mentioned Britain hasn't hosted the cup for thirty years. In other words, it's in nineteen sixty four that the Britain last hosted the Quidditch World Cup. About five years before the first war against Voldemort began, and we also know this time around, Ron's dad got the tickets, and it was on Monday night. So this helps us to pin down the dates of this chapter's action more closely. The events of this chapter occurs two days before the Quidditch World Cup. So Saturday they got this letter, Sunday they pick Harry up, Monday they go watch this Quidditch World Cup. Before we move on and this chapter, I just want to read you some of the exceptional nice quotes from the book Petunia. Going to the opposite extreme of underfeeding the family while Dudley is on a diet, but even then making sure to single Harry out for particularly shabby treatment in the matter of food. Number two, Harry's friends who not only supply him with food, but with birthday cakes. Number three, pig widgeons. It's pig and the pigeons. Pig widgeon. It's that owl, that small little tiny owl. Pig widgeon's hyperactive joy at having made a successful delivery. If he were human, he might be a lot like the Creevy brothers. Number four, I guess. So he said, marching over to the fireplace and turning to face Harry as though he was about to pronounce him under arrest. So. Harry would have clearly loved to have said, "So what?" But he didn't feel Uncle Vernon's temper should be tested this early in the morning, especially when it was already under severe strain from lack of food. Yeah, these are the moments I really liked. And back to the chapter, it ends with Harry unfolded the parchment to Sirius Black and also added a postscript saying, "If you want to contact me, I'll be at my friend Ron Weasley's for the rest of the summer. His dad got us tickets for the Quidditch World Cup." The letter finished. He tied it to Hedwig's leg and also said to Hedwig, "I'll be at Ron's when you get back, all right?" Harry watched her out of sight, then crawled under his bed. Ranged up the loose floorboard and pulled out a large chunk of birthday cake. He sat there on the floor eating it, savoring the happiness that was flooding through him. He had cake, and Dudley had nothing but grapefruit. It was a bright summer's day. He would be leaving Privet Drive tomorrow. His scar felt perfectly normal again, and he was going to watch the Quidditch World Cup. It was hard just now to feel worried about anything, even Lord Voldemort. Chapter Four: Back to the Barrel. If this whole chapter is dedicated to the picking up scene, we know they're going to mess with the Dursleys. I just remember when I first read this part as a young child, I enjoyed it so much. Just like how they mess with the Dursleys is a great enjoyment. Very enjoyable bits usually at the beginning of each book, but this time around, I'm not so sure. Just Try to interpret a little bit differently. I will try to empathize with the Dursleys at least on Petunia. I will just tell you straight away what happens in this chapter is Harry waits for the arrival of the Weasleys, who arrived not by car but by flu powders, and the twins drops on toffees that made Dudley's tongue grow a huge purple color and size. So basically, is the Weasleys blast their way out of the blocked-off fireplace and then leave Mr. Weasley, Arthur, quite impressive this time, I'll tell you, Mr. Weasley to sort it out as Uncle Vernon begins to throw things at him. 
The chapter opens with the next day by twelve o'clock. Harry is ready to go. His school trunk was packed with his school things and taken down the chart on the wall, counting down the days to September the first. This is the chart on which he liked to cross off the days remaining until his return to Hogwarts. Just to show you how eager usually Harry is to go back to Hogwarts. It's like summer holiday begins. Oh, I wish it's finished. As clumsy you might expect he to be as a teenage boy, but he actually double-checked every nook and cranny of his bedroom for forgotten bell books or crows, checking his most prized possessions: the invisibility cloak and the broomstick, which was given by Sirius Black, an enchanted map, Marauder's map, and the rest of the Dursley is is described as uptight and irritable. I will ignore all the descriptive sentences, only focus on what the Dursley said, and judging by their behavior, to see if they meant differently. Uncle Vernon is definitely just a piece of shite, as he always is. I just want to see if there is some other meaning they conveyed instead of always a malicious one. So the first thing he said was, "I hope you told them to dress properly. Those people to better have the decency to put on normal clothes. That's all." He is definitely very concerned about appearances, and we see Harry is thinking Mr. and Mrs. Weasley usually wore long robes in various states of shabbiness. Harry wasn't bothered about what the neighbors would think, but he was anxious about how rude the Dursleys might be to the Weasleys if they turned up looking like the worst idea of wizards. Uncle Vernon had put on his best suit. To some people, this might have looked like a gesture of welcome, but Harry knew it was because Uncle Vernon wanted to look impressive and intimidating. Well, hold your horses. Let's just take it as a nice gesture, okay? And for Dudley, just a bit funny bit. How he developed PTSD from the last pigtail accident situation from Hagrid. So this second encounter with the wizards make him extremely nervous, and he kept running his hand nervously over his bad side and walking sideways from room to room, so as not to present the same targets to the enemy. Lunch was almost silent meal. Dudley didn't even protest at the food. Aunt Petunia wasn't eating anything at all. Only Uncle Vernon said something like, "They will be driving, of course." Uh, said Harry. He hadn't thought of that. How were the Dursleys going to pick him up? He can only answer, "I think so." To this, Uncle Vernon snorted into his mustache. Normally, Uncle Vernon would have asked what car Mister Weasley drove. He tended to judge other men by how big and expensive the cars were. But Harry doubted whether Uncle Vernon would have taken to Mister Weasley, even if he drove a Ferrari. Okay, this in turn, let's judge the character of Vernon by showing us what he thinks is important: appearances, again, and financial status. Notice that he concentrates on cars. Size and cost, not on the car's performance, because this was also according to Harry's normal observation. So I will give it to that. He is a piece of shit again, just always judging people's appearances and financial status. And Aunt Petunia was compulsively straightening cushions. I'm feeling you, woman. I think she's really just trying to put on the best performance, or like just showing the guests the best side of her house. When five o'clock came and then went, they are late. Yeah, so Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon had this conversation, like no consideration at all. We might have had an engagement. Maybe they think they will get invited to dinner if they are late. You know, that's what housewives thought.
as their logic, like they're late by the five o'clock appointment. That must mean they want to stay for dinner. But to that, Uncle Vernon said, "Well, they most certainly won't be." Getting any dinner, they would take the boy and go. There will be no hanging around. The next thing happens when we hear voices coming out of a blocked fireplace. There was a loud hammering of fists on the boards behind the electric fire. I like how they didn't understand. It's like, damn, what on earth did they want to block up the fireplace for? Harry tried to explain. They've got an electric fire. How Mr. Weasley always so fascinated by all Muggle things. It's like eclectic, you say, with a plug. Gracious! I must see that. Let's think. And eventually, bam! They just blasted the whole thing off. On this note, I must say, I'm with the Dursleys. It's like it's not nice to blast their house off. And Petunia shrank and fell backwards over the coffee table. Just to imagine a clean freak like Aunt Petunia. She's probably died a hundred times inside. But let's forgive them, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley. They meant well. As we see, Mr. Weasley warmly approaches Aunt Petunia and Uncle Vernon, like shake hands or something, and Aunt Petunia just shrinks. I wonder what would happen if they just approached by car, and would they shake hands? Would they at least pretend to be social and civil? Anyway, it didn't happen. They just come by flu powder. And Fred and George run upstairs to get Harry's trunk, as Mr. Weasley tried unsuccessfully to make small talks about plugs and the electric fire. It does show, like, how do you bridge the gap in culture between muggles and wizards, right? As a child reading this, I was just making fun of the Thursdays, make me happy. That's all. I didn't think about it. But as、uh, now, as a grown-up, we do have to think things from multiple angles. You must understand how Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia interpret this: people being late, not being late necessarily because the fireplace was blocked, and just interprets people suddenly appearing in his fireplace. You know, as well as Mr. Weasley's fascination about electricity and Muggle technology. And when Dudley showed up, I knew something. Even when I was young, I knew something would happen to Dudley again, just like the last time pigtail situation. And Dudley refused to answer as Mr. Weasley tried to kindly ask him about his summer vacation, just like a normal adults, a normal kind and caring adults to a child. But of course, this family is very extremely toxic and dysfunctioning. So this time, Dudley received Fred or George's treat. Mr. Weasley lights a fire and tells Fred to go first. Before Fred steps into the fire, he drops toffees and scrambles to pick them up again, purposefully. George goes next with Harry's trunk, followed by Ron. And Harry bids the Dursley goodbye as he steps towards the fire. This comes the exceptional character moments. That's when Arthur, Mr. Weasley. Bravo! Who notices how little the Dursleys care about Harry's departure? Compare the lack of so much as a goodbye from either Vernon or Petunia. Okay, I might as well read you the whole departure part. Mr. Weasley took a small drawstring bag from his pocket, untied it, took a pinch of the powder inside, and threw it onto the flames, which turned emeralds green and rolled higher. Than ever. Off you go, then, Fred," said Mr. Weasley. "Coming," said Fred. "Oh no! Hang on." A bag of sweets had spilled out of Fred's pocket, and the contents were now rolling in every direction. Big fat toffees in brightly colored wrappers. Fred scrambled around, cramming them back into his pocket, and then gave the Dursleys a cheery wave, stepped forward, and walked right into the flame, saying, "The burrow." Then there was a whooshing sound, and Fred vanished. Right then, George said, "Mr. Weasley, you and the trunk." 
Harry helped George carry the trunk forward into the flames and turn it onto its end so that he could hold it better. Then, with a second whoosh, George had cried the barrel and vanished too. Ron, you next," said Mister Weasley. "See you," said Ron brightly to the Dursleys. He grinned broadly at Harry, then stepped into the fire, shouted the barrel, and disappeared. Now Harry. And Mr. Weasley alone remained. Well, by then, Harry said to the Dursleys, they didn't say anything at all. Harry moved towards the fire, but just as he reached the edge of the hearth, Mr. Weasley put out a hand and held him back. He was looking at the Dursleys in amazement. Harry said goodbye to you, didn't you hear him? Harry just quickly muttered to Mr. Weasley, "It doesn't matter. Honestly, I don't care." Mr. Weasley. Did not remove his hand from Harry's shoulder. You aren't going to see your nephew until next summer. Surely you are going to say goodbye. The next sentence is also good. Uncle Vernon's face worked furiously. The idea of being told consideration by a man who had just blasted away half his living room wall seemed to be causing him intense suffering. But once in hand, Mr. Weasley is still the authority here. Uncle Vernon has to say goodbye then. See you. Said Harry, putting one foot forward into the green flame, which felt pleasantly like warm breeze. Much better this time compared with the last visit to Nocturnally. But that's when something happened. Harry wheeled around. Dudley was no longer standing behind his parents. He was kneeling beside the coffee table, and he was gagging and sputtering on a foot-long purple, a foot-long purple slimy thing that was protruding from his mouth. Ew! One bewildered second later. Harry realized that the foot-long thing was Dudley's tongue, and that a brightly colored toffee wrapper lay on the floor before him. What's the lesson here, guys? The lesson is don't just eat random things on the floor. Mister Weasley tried to help. He said, "Not to worry, I can sort him out." He advanced on Dudley with his wand outstretched, and this action's movement just made Aunt Un- Petunia screamed worse than ever. So we know what Fred made this. Joker, this engorgement charm. Remember how Hagrid used the engorgement charm on the pumpkins and made the pumpkin enormous. Mr. Weasley, of course, tried to correct it, but they just didn't let him, which is understandable, I think. Though whatever happened to Dudley is clearly the work of magic. This also indicates that the Dursleys aren't willing to think critically about what's going on with the wizarding, the witchcrafts, the wizard thing. It's like your magic. Is the cause of my son's tongue becoming engorged? <laughs> I'm not letting this cause of the pain to be the solution to my pain. I I don't trust you. It's like I think it's understandable, but it's still silly to watch. I mean, at least Mr. Weasley should look very friendly and kind and trustworthy. Harry really didn't want to miss the fun to watch this whole scenario, but he also thought it. Best to leave the situation to Mr. Weasley, so he stepped into the fire, looking over his shoulder as he said the barrel. His last fleeting glimpse of the living room was of Mr. Weasley blasting a third ornament out of Uncle Vernon's hand with his wand, and Petunia screaming again and again and lying on top of Dudley, and Dudley's tongue. Lolling around like a gray slimy python, <laughs> but next moment Harry had begun to spin very fast, and the Dursleys' living room was whipped out of sight in a rush of emerald green flame. Next chapter five: Weasley's wizard whizzes. Is it so hard to say? Weasley's wizard whizzes. So Harry started with Edge. Harry spun faster and faster. Elbows tucked tightly to his side. Blurred fireplaces flashing past him until he started to feel sick and closed his eyes. 
Then that's a good choice, by the way. Close your eyes. Then, when at last he felt himself slowing down, he threw out his hands and came to a halt in time to prevent himself from falling face forwards to the Weasley's kitchen fire. The first thing he heard was Fred said excitedly, "Did he eat it?" When they heard "Yes,"、yeah, the tiny kitchen exploded with laughter, and Harry looked around and saw that Ron and George were sitting at a squabbed wooden table with two red-haired people Harry had never seen before, though he knew immediately who they must be. He, Harry must have seen the pictures, the photos. So that's Bill and Charlie, the eldest Weasley brothers. I like how Harry just go Sherlock Holmes here. It's like while shaking hands, Harry just feel the blisters of one of their fingers and just deduced this has to be Charlie, who worked with dragons in Romania. And Charlie was built like the twins, shorter and stockier than Percy and Ron. This is a little bit in contrast to the movies, whereas Ron was not like tall and lanky. But the twins' friend George in the movies are long and lanky, I think. But Charlie here had a good-natured face, which was weather bitten, and he looked almost tanned. His arms were muscular, and one of them had a large, shiny burn on it. Of course, work with dragons. And then Bill, yeah, finally we get to meet. Bill. So far, we knew he worked for the Gringotts Wizarding Bank. We knew he had been head boy at Hogwarts. So, like Harry here, we must have this impression of like an older version of Percy, fussy about rule breaking and very fond of. Bossing everybody around here, not my words, but J.K. Rowling's words. However, Bill was there was no other word for it. Cool. He was tall with long hair that he had tied back in a ponytail. He was wearing an earring with what looked like a fan dangling from it. Bill's clothes would not have looked out of place at a rock concert, except that Harry recognized his boots to be made not of leather but of dragon hide. What? Just before any of them could say anything else, there was a faint popping noise, and Mr. Weasley finally came back and shouts angrily at Fred. He yells that Dudley's tongue was four feet long before the Dursleys allowed him to shrink it, and threatened to tell Mrs. Weasley. Mrs. Weasley appears, and it becomes clear that Mr. Weasley never actually intended to tell his wife, but she heard anyway. Then we cut to Hermione and Ginny. They became besties in the future. But anyway, the girls、uh, suggested Ron and Harry come upstairs. I just really want to mention Bill again. Just the appearance and the whole surprising aspect of Bill just made this note on Harry. I think it makes Harry feel adulthood in the Wizarding World doesn't have to be boring. Doesn't have to be all boring robes and teaching at Hogwarts. Sorry to the professors. Peter also learned that Bill had this. His job is very exciting, and he's. Kind of treasure hunting or treasure collecting for the Gringotts, and even for relationships, the marriage, the Wizarding post, like Mr. and Mrs. Weasley's relationship, should shape and change Harry's idea of a, what a marriage should look like. I mean, look at Uncle Vernon and Petunia. Even though they're married, they had a nice house. We must say that Petunia is definitely being abused psychologically. I mean, come on, her side of family was constantly being the kind of shame, quote unquote, shame of the family tree, and she is. Extremely skinny compared to the other two, and she's obsessed with cleaning the house. Wonder what she thought she was cleaning off, you know. Anyway, I think it just the Wizarding World. That's why I say the Weasleys was so important for Harry to see. It's like what the future is hold him. Like going back to be a Muggle, having that kind of future, or staying in the Wizarding World. 
you know, get married and having a family life or domestic life like Mr. and Mrs. Wesley had here. Come back to Hermione's appearing. I, I mean, this was also in the movies and eyeing Ron. It's like, why don't you show Harry where he's sleeping? Ron first didn't get it. He's like, he knows where he's sleeping in my room. He slept there last. And then Hermione said pointedly, we can all go. Oh, here used Ron just gets it. Cottoning on. Oh, right. Then the four of them, Harry, Ron, Hermione, and Ginny, set off along the narrow hallway and up the rockety staircase and zigzagged through the house to upper stories. I love the barrel. I really do. You just imagine the rockety staircase and how you have to zigzag through the house if you want to move upstairs. And Harry immediately asked the question I wanted to ask. What are the Weasley wizard wizzies? Ron and Jenny both laughed, although Hermione didn't. It's this stack of older forms Mrs. Weasley found in Fred and George's room. It's this great long price list for stuff they've invented. Joke stuff, you know, fake wands and trick sweets, loads of stuff. It was brilliant. I never knew they'd been inventing all that. We've been hearing explosion though, explosion out of their room for ages, but we never thought they were actually making things. We thought they just liked the noise. Ah, oh, silly and naive Jenny. Only most of the stuff Ron kept on saying, well, all of it really was a bit dangerous. And you know, they were planning to sell it at Hogwarts and make some money. And mom went mad at them, told them they weren't allowed to make any more of it and burned all the older forms. In my mind now, I absolutely didn't think of this when I was young, when I first read this part. I do think they are cool always. But now in my mind, I just feel like they are cooking up stuff, you know? So they want to sell those stuff, blue stuff in Hogwarts school. Here also mentioned again about the owls, like OWLs, they are ordinary wisdom levels. Always call it like levels, like A levels in Britain, those are British schools. So here they have owls, the equivalent of the A levels to the Hogwarts students, which they must take at the age of 15. And we do get a glimpse of the, the expectation from your parents, that kind of thing. Even in the Whistling world, we see as a parents, Mr. and Mrs. Weasley still wanted the friend George to go into the Ministry of Magic. As free-spirited, you thought they should be. They still didn't want them to open or do what they wanted. They didn't want them to open the joke shop. And then here we see Percy. Uh, Percy just started to work for the ministry and he didn't go anywhere. He stayed at home. And we see him <laughs> poked out wearing a horn-rimmed glasses and a very annoyed expression. I'm picturing that horn-rimmed glasses. Oh, hello, Harry. I was wondering who was making all that noise. I'm trying to work in here, you know. I've got a report to finish for the office. And it's rather difficult to concentrate when people keep thundering up and down the stairs. We are not thundering. We are walking. Sorry if we've disturbed the top secret workings of the Ministry of Magic. Percy and Ron are always quarreling. It's true. Percy would really burn your pants off when he explaining how important he thinks. As he was explaining to Harry about this work, this report on thickness of the cauldron buttons, Ron just sweeps them upstairs. Ron's room, Harry noticed the tiny owl, pig, short for pig's widgeon. Now we know actually Ginny gave it that name and Ron hates it. Instead, he called that owl pig. 
He said that Percy loves work to an unhealthy amount. He also go on at length about his boss, Mr. Crouch. Giving the slightest opportunity, Ron begins to ask about Sirius Black, but stops when he remembers that Ginny, who knows nothing about Sirius Black, is in the room, and Hermione suggests they go downstairs to help with dinner. I still remember in the movies how they all sat together in the kitchen. Hermione was there finally, and just seeing Hermione in Barrow makes my heart warm. So down in the kitchen, Mrs. Weasley is in a horrible mood as she magically peels potatoes and starts a soup. She angrily talks to herself about friend George's lack of ambition as Harry, Ron, and Hermione grab plates and silverware. Outside, Bill and Charlie levitating two long tables and making them smash into each other. Friend George laughs while Percy yells out the window to stop. Several hours later, the tables are laden with food, and Harry feels as if he's in paradise. I would feel so. I would feel exactly how Harry is feeling at that moment. This is basically, I think, the part where the children start to think about the future, just to see people around you how. They looked like. Do you wish to become your brother, or do you wish to become these adults in front of you? And what wrong here? Actually, it's direct brothers. While Ron here isn't yet thinking about the future much, this does begin to make it clear to him that his parents would definitely want him to at least aspire to be in a ministry or to get a ministry job, even if now we know it's not something he actually wants to do. This is pretty much the chapter, but there are still a few things to. Catching up, it feels like catching up with your good old friend. First, we still get to see Crookshanks. Harry asks Hermione, "Is that where's Crookshanks? Out in the garden? I expect he likes chasing gnomes. He's never seen any before, and it's good to see Bill and Charlie are setting up the table outside." I like to see those tiny houses. Like even if your family are poor, you're still so loving together. Like we, there isn't much room. There isn't enough room for eleven people in here, so we have to eat out in the garden. Still, that feels like eating in paradise, like Harry felt. Now we get to see Ron and Percy always argue, but Bill, Charlie, and Percy—they also are like brothers. When Bill and Charlie are making huge noises while setting up tables outside, Percy just bellowed, "Will you keep it down? Sorry, Percy." Bill said, grinning, "How are the cauldron buttons coming on?" By seven o'clock, the two tables were groaning, laden with food, dishes, and dishes of Mrs. Weasley's excellent cooking. They were all settling themselves down to eat beneath a clear, deep blue sky. To somebody who had been living on meals of increasingly stale cake all summer, this was paradise. And at first, Harry listened rather than talked as he helped himself to chicken and ham pie, boiled potatoes, and salad. And we can see, as Percy was working in the ministry, he and Mr. Weasley had so much to talk about. That's their expectation achieved. But also another important person now is remember the servant Voldemort killed in the beginning of this book, Bertha Jorkins. So here they are discussing the disappearance of her. Like you realize, Bertha Jorkins had been missing for over a month now. Went on holiday to Albania and never came back. Yes, I was asking Ludo about it," said Mr. Weasley, frowning. He says Bertha's gotten lost plenty of times before now. Though I must say, if it was someone in my department, I'd be worried. So we can see absolutely, Mr. Weasley is a caring boss. But to this, Percy said, "Oh, 
Bertha's helpless, all right. I hear she's been shunted from department to department for years. Much more trouble than she's worth. Blah blah blah. Somebody just suggested she probably misread the map and ended up in Australia instead of Albania. Why is it always those? Insignificant figure or characters got killed. Nobody's missed them, and we will also know this Department of International Magical Cooperation that Percy is in got big events to organize right after the World Cup. And on another side, in the middle of the table, Mrs. Weasley was arguing with Bill about his earrings. Mom, no one at the bank gives a damn how I dress as long as I bring home plenty of treasure. To this, Mrs. Weasley said, "And your hair is getting silly, dear." Wish you'd let me give it a trim. I like it. Surprisingly said by Ginny, who was sitting beside Bill. You are so old-fashioned, Mom. Anyway, it's nowhere near as long as Professor Dumbledore's. And then next to Mrs. Weasley, all the boys are talking about the World Cup. Here we heard something about this Victor Krum. Victor Krum, Hermione states. Eventually, just check the ambience and atmosphere. So great, Mr. Weasley conjured up candles to light the darkening garden before they had their homemade strawberry ice cream. And by the time they had finished, mosses were fluttering low over the table, and the warm air was perfumed with the smell of grass and honeysuckle. Harry was feeling extremely well fed and at peace with the world. Ron was listening to all this chatting, and he asked Harry about Sirius Black. Harry told them they had been exchanging letters, but as just for now, he doesn't want to tell Ron Hermione about his scar hurting, about the dream of Voldemort's plotting to kill him. <laughs> he really didn't want to worry them just now, when everybody was feeling so happy and peaceful. Finally, Mrs. Weasley said, "You should really be in bed, the whole lot of you. You will be up at crack of dawn to get to the cup, Harry. If you leave your school list out, I will get your things for you tomorrow in Diagon Alley. I'm getting everyone else." The match went on for five days last time, so there might not be time after the World Cup to get your school things. How so very kind of her, so sweet, just a big loving family forever and always. The Weasleys will be my perfect family prototype.